0: It's August 2nd, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor. We're going to talk about the week's noteworthy headlines in the world of acquisition. And the first one up, Kessel Run shows how to bridge the gap between development and operations. Here's an article from our friend Dan Pat and uh, Colonel Brian Bichkovsky, who was uh, running Kessel Run, right? And I I guess he just left there, but they they had a nice kind of article that opened up, um, had a lot of ideas in it. One of them that I really love, is this idea uh, that software is different because hardware, you have the blueprint that mediates between design and manufacturing. And a lot of these, you know, DOD processes we have in the acquisition process kind of presume that, whereas for software, the specification is the source code, right? So there is kind of like, it's constantly changing. There is no blueprint that you then go implement later. It is the code. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting lens on life. Um, that, that DOD needs to kind of get with, but a lot of other interesting things. What did you take out of it? Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, in essence, it's a primer
1: on DevSecOps. And uh, for, you know, for folks that aren't, aren't familiar with that, it's really sort of a, an agile methodology for, uh, for software development that, that integrates a lot of those, um, you know, th- those things that can really slow down software deployment. So building in security, building in regular testing, uh, you know, regular regular code commits that allow you to sort of, you know, to find issues because you're testing all the time. And if there's an issue, you don't have to go back over, you know, 10,000 lines of code. You just go back over, you know, the 50 lines that you wrote, you know, wrote the day before. So, you know, it's, it, that, that approach is really what's trying to be propagated, uh, that a lot of different folks are trying to propagate across TOD. And uh, Tesla Run was, you know, kind of first out of the gate to really show it it's been, you know, adopted by other programs. So I thought this was a great article to me, was just like a great primer on it. You know, like even just talking about the three principles that that they uh, were focusing on there with like clear operational challenges. Like that's exactly what we tell software programs is like, you know, understand what your MVP looks like, understand the the priorities, uh, you know, like structure your organizations, right? If you don't structure the organizations to be, you know, to adapt to DevSecOps and agile approaches, then, then you can't be successful. You're just going like, to have all kinds of issues, and then ensure the team can execute. So ensure you have that sort of, you know, uh, that that team that gets more tight knit over time, and they can uh, work well together and basically learn and make it. You know, make improvements. or So and yeah, I thought this was a this was a really good article for for laying that out and just showing sort of the vision.
0: One of the Weird things for me here was that, you know, as they kind of talked about DevSecOps, um, the line between acquisition and operations is kind of being blurred. And they brought up the idea of this. We have this, you know, materiel command structure separate from the actual combatant command, uh, major commands that are that are operating them. And maybe this was useful in the past, but they're kind of saying, well, maybe that's not the structure that is necessary going forward. I've heard, you know, like... Kessel Run has had some some issues with ACC, which is kind of its requirements sponsor, uh, but there's a lot of cats to coordinate not just not just with that, but others as well. So I don't know exactly what they were trying to get at with that, because they kind of just dropped that in there and kind of kept moving. But it seems like that's that that would have a huge organizational kind of concept and impact that really goes back to something before 1958, where the combatant commands were actually stood up.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I mean the, the military right is structured for the Cold War still, and so I do think there's a case to be made that you know that that needs a relook. And are we, you know, are we structured right for some of these fights, and especially moving into a digital age and some of the new technologies that you know will dominate? Um, do we need do we need the same structures? But I mean, in general, I'd say you know there are certain programs that are too are too large or too, you know, broad, you know, they they actually go across, you know, maybe multiple co-coms, multiple, uh, you know, kind of domains, you know, not everything can be done, you know, integrated. So if you tried to like put these organizations in the the same organization, I'm not sure it would work that well. Uh, Cybercom does have that. Socom has that. And, you know, it works well at Socom. It works, you know, reasonably well at, at, at Cybercom. Um, but if you try to do it for all things, I, I think it would become unwieldy. So I feel like there does have to be a division for some sort of, you know, some procurement, some acquisition. Not everything could be integrated, um, but more could be integrated, I think, is, is, is a good case to make. And I think uh, I think the Army's kind of showing this by what they're doing with the, their, their Army software factory where they're training. Soldiers to actually do software development and then deploying them back to their units, or not deploying them, just sending them back to their units. But now they have skills and they can, you know, do some of that. And if you're operating on, you know, if you have a, an architecture that, that all di- different types of, um, uh, you know, enterprise services everyone can run on, you can have different coders contributing to that and deploying that in that into that architecture. Right now we have so many different types of architecture and different things, you know, running. That's not really possible. But that that would be sort of the vision is if you wanted to sort of merge ops and development even more, is allow more operators to do the coding, right, and and to have coders closer to them to solve their problems. Uh, but right now, it's uh, you know there are a lot of challenges with that. But that definitely is the vision. So
0: next one we got up is a uh, marine for marine Corps force design twenty thirty we have uh c s i s putting out a nice little report that kind of overviews the capabilities and critiques and has a nice little table built in on you know exactly how many battalions have been lost and you know what what has happened with each kind of weapon system or capability area um so it's kind of nice you know we we know for example that the marine Corps is divesting from tanks bridging um towed artillery making more investments into rocket artillery systems, the nemesis, right, with the JLTV and the naval strike missile put on top of that, mm-hmm. unmanned aerial systems. What you, would what'd you take away from it? We, we've we talked a lot about this in the past. Yeah, we have. I mean, you know, I think we're
1: both big supporters of uh, force design. And, you know, they really, I think, are have done, you know, made some changes uh, based on some some of the critiques. And I think they've really shown that, yeah, they can do the future force You know, they have seven Marine expeditionary units that, you know, can go do other, you know, 9-11 type uh, responses and things like that. So, um, yeah, I thought this did a good job of sort of laying out the different critiques and and different things that, um, you know, how the Marine Corps is addressing them. So it's worth reading. A couple of quick things I took away was just like, you know, one of the big critiques was that, you know, we weren't going to have cannon batteries anymore. And some of those, you know, kind of have been added back. But this, you know, the, the, the force design was basically to take cannon batteries and replace them with rocket artillery batteries. And I just, I, I do struggle with like why folks have such a hard time with that. But then, you know, the tank battalions going away, sure, that that, that has a lot of uh, motion, motion behind it. Um, the other couple of interesting things were just like the fact that uh, almost five rotary squadrons um, and one tilt rotor squadron will be st- stood down, but three UAV squadrons will be stood up. So, yeah, I thought those were a couple interesting numbers just in terms of some of the substitutions uh for those uh for those marine littoral uh, uh, units that that will be supporting the the 3rd MEF. So
0: Yeah, the two critiques that kind of were highlighted here were one, divest to invest is kind of a, a risky strategy, let's just say that. And then the second one of course is that the Marine Corps will be ill equipped to fight insurgencies or regional wars, or do that kind of fight tonight, as you said um so yeah, th- there is the issue on the rockets, but you know they do make the point that um these these rockets can be what a hundred thousand each. I'm not sure exactly what, for example the high Mars is naval strike missile will be severely a lot more than that, so just getting fires down and smoke maneuver, that kind of stuff seems to be what the the generals are pretty. Um, I guess, anticipating, you know, destruction without having that. <laughs> so I don't know if they're a little bit hyperbolic there in terms of saying, you know, you're destroying the baby, you're killing the child, you're killing the Marine Corps if you get, if you do this experimentation. But yeah, I, I also am fairly supportive, right? I think it's a measured approach that, that burger is taking. So some kind of, you know, reallocation of resources needed to be done.
1: Yeah, there's really. I mean, I think it would be great to live in a world where you don't have to divest to invest, but I, I just don't think. And, and we'll talk a little about the Air Force, but I just don't think we live in that world. I mean, there's no there's no way to make some of these really hard investments and keep everything that you have. I mean, the only way to do it is to trade off some stuff, and so you try to do it with the least amount of risk, which I think is what General Berger has done. But but yeah, ultimately that's a trade off. The uh, yeah, the cost on the HIMARS individual missile is about 150k. But, yeah, like you said, it's a, a big delta from, from some of the larger missiles.
0: I mean, you're basically throwing out a human salary in the United States every time you, you launch one of those things, right? And a salvo will be, you know, a small team of people for a year.
1: Anyway. But look at the effectiveness in Ukraine, though. They're really, uh, the, Russians, the Russians, I don't think there's a weapon the Russians hate most right now than the, the Heimar missiles.
0: No, that's true. I mean, you do have the accuracy. I think it's just the the quantities, right? Um, and the suppressing fire, whether whether you, you lose some some of that. Well, let's move on. The next one we got, Boom Supersonic and Northrop Grumman team to build super fast U.S. military aircraft. And so, of course, Boom Supersonic, they have their Overture aircraft, their XB-1. It was supposed to be tested sometime last year, 2021, uh, but they, they aren't there yet. They say they're completed 80% of the pre-flight testing. Boom also got a big... Stratify award from afworks right in the air forks so they were one of the the big recipients i don't know exactly what it was i think it was 30 million dollars if i'm not mistaken but here's more news right just like hermias was kind of the hypersonic and they're kind of teaming up to a degree with i believe it was was raytheon right now boom supersonic it's kind of teaming up with northrop and again it makes it i think it's interesting makes sense um, but the, the one position you never want to be as those guys is to be like the supplier, like a sub locked into a subcontract relationship where the prime because you, you know, you, you hear often that the prime contractors are pretty they drive a really hard bargain, you know, on a lot of their subcontractors. They'll get a cost plus and then award the subs a fixed price and then really try to drive the that bargain later. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Uh, they haven't tested uh, the uh, overture yet it'll be interesting to think about like that kind of airframe add in Northrop's airframing and all their ISR and, and the rest of it.
1: yeah, I just kind of curious about which uh, you know wh- what particular military need they were going to go mm-hmm. after. I mean boom is clearly and, and that is a, a sweet looking plane. I, I definitely want to fly on that thing. Um, but it, it definitely seems like they're focused on you know the commercial transport market. So it was a little bit hard. I wasn't sure exactly was Northrop thinking they would, um, you know, to transport, like, you know, executive transport or... uh, That was the original... ...or something. Yeah, I
0: think that's what they were talking about um, in the Air Force with the Stratford. It's interesting.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, there's definitely some of those planes, but it's not like a a huge quantity. But maybe Boom is just trying to get... Maybe they're looking at it as sort of like... a way to build, build more confidence. But it was interesting that they already have deals signed with United airlines um, and stuff like that. So I I'm actually a little curious why, why they're teaming with Northrop. There must be, there must be something lacking in their infrastructure that Northrop can fill and that uh, you know, maybe when it comes to coatings or material or something that uh, that they're able to leverage, but yeah, interesting to see where this goes.
0: Yeah, it's not like they're Definitely gonna it. turn it into a stealth aircraft, but maybe they, yeah. they can trick it out with uh mission equipment and stuff like that. Or, you know, maybe Boom doesn't have all the business systems required and they're like, you know, maybe it would be better if we don't directly do business, you know, with government yeah. outside of the zipper realm.
1: Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe the they're they're giving Northrop, Northrop's giving them something that will help them with the commercial market, and they're giving them Northrop something that will help them with. It this other, you know, C-19 replacement niche. Um, But yeah, interesting. The, the one stat that I took out of the article was overtures basically will be able to fly from Paris to Montreal. uh, I guess they, they might be a French oriented company, um, Paris to Montreal in three hours and 45 minutes um, as opposed to seven hours and 15 minutes a day. So that is a, that's
0: a really big deal. Yeah. Mach 1.7 over water, just under Mach 1 over land. So uh, mm-hmm. All right. Well, the next one we got up. George Mason experts urge DOD to improve how it uses data from tech consortia. And so that was a study that came out from Mason GovCon, where, of course, I'm at. And uh, it's not just Mason experts, that's Stephanie Halcrow with George Mason, but also our friend Moshe Schwartz, who is not with George Mason. But it was a great, <laughs> was a great uh, uh, paper that they put out with us. And they had a nice webinar. And basically, there's 42 consortia, technology consortia that they identified um, overall. Most of those, 38 of those, um, are kind of like other transactions type consortia, or at least include those. Um, And 12 of those overall 42, they were able to get data from. And basically what the data said was that most of the awards went to non-traditional, or most of the the members were actually non-traditional contractors. So between about 69 and looks like 82% of their sample, um, up to 89% were actually non-traditional companies. And so I think that was great, you know, but it didn't really get to me what the reality was like, okay, so a lot of these are non-traditional companies, but how many awards and how many, um, Dollars are they actually getting? <laughs> you know, what's the percentage of that? And then, how much of it are they getting as subs to you know a traditional Prime who's using the non-traditional as the reason to get another transaction or otherwise? Um, there's still a lot more data analysis I think that can be done. But their conclusions were that the consortia actually do bolster or raise the level of non-traditional participation. So that's actually pretty welcome news because some people are skeptical of the consortia certain offices like defense innovation unit and DARPA actually do not use um, other transactions consortia, or they don't go through consortia to get to um, companies through other transactions. They just directly allocate the funds. So you can have other transactions consortia. You can actually just go through consortia in other ways as well. Um, But yeah, any takeaways from you? Well, I was with you on, on some of the questions that I still had. Um, yeah, and I
1: think I think actually you were right when you said that the non-traditional got the majority of the awards, the ones they studied. But it, like you said, they did not have the um, the dollars associated with them. So they may have gotten higher quantities of awards, but it was kind of hard to tell it, what those dollars uh, th- 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 those awards equate to the the large dollars. But um, yeah, you're, I think you're right. There's there's positive in just the fact that. One, that non-traditionals are getting any kind of awards um, because I think, you know, that the focus has been on Cibber and the fact that they, you know, have a hard time moving away from Cibber. So so at least this shows that they're playing in the game. Uh, are they playing in the game the way they want? I think that's kind of the next level analysis. Is this leading to, like, long-term uh, sustainability for these small companies? Are they, you know, able to grow or like you said, are they just sort of being maybe subjugated by some of the larger primes? So, yeah, I think more to come. But, uh, you know, I think it's I think one of the recommendations that I really connected with was just the transparency piece. I think these OT consortia have been a little bit uh, lacking in the transparency side. And I think that's going to create a backlash in Congress if they don't uh, start to open up their data so we can understand what's going on. Um, and so that, that, that sort of has to happen. I think there was already some legislative language on that front.
0: But the, you know, the government also collects a lot of that information. It's just in like all these non-standard formats. I mean, it would be kind of ridiculous to me to think that even if it's not articulated in one place, that someone in the government didn't know who was actually performing on these projects. I think you're right that
1: individual offices probably knew, uh, potentially, um, but that they, you know, there was nobody at the higher levels that was collecting it. So Yeah, you're probably right.
0: Next one we'll do, Rocket Science, How the Space Force Acquisition Works with many Players and Dual Hats. And so this was kind of a confusing article to me, um, illuminating in some ways and confusing in others because it made it seem like there's all sorts of craziness going on with Space Force acquisition in the organization. But basically, it was um, it's a lot of the same organization style that exists in the other services and Air Force more generally, which basically is... The commander of Space Systems Command actually doesn't like, you know, direct the PEOs to do something right. Since Goldwater-Nichols, we've had program manager reports to the program executive officer. The program executive officer then reports to the service acquisition executive, who's Calveli right now for the the Space Force. And so this article kind of had some interesting, um, you know, organizational charts, which showed all the PEOs. There's five PEOs under Space Systems Command. We talked about that reorganization around these five different portfolios recently, uh, but they got five of those. And then there's two other PEOs, the Space Rapid Capabilities Office and eventually the Space Development Agency. But those are kind of report up to the service acquisition executive, but aren't in the Space Systems Command. Now, the Space Systems Commander, um you know, coordinates those folks and has a bunch of functional support to help out those folks and also coordinates with the labs who also report up to Air Force Material Command. So there's a lot of interestingness, but you know, like the commander of Air Force Life Life Cycle Management Center also isn't directly in charge of the PEOs, nor is the commander of TACOM or NAVC, right? So there's a lot of talk here about General Gutline who who is the Space Systems Command commander um and like all this kinds of what is his authority or not authority but i think the same analysis could have been done for other you know services um but what was your kind of reaction
1: well i mean i think i've been a a little bit of a critic about sort of how complex they made it i mean um as you know so part of the part of the thing is right it's that like the sda and space rco were sort of stood up to be separate um, from from SSC or SMC, uh, back in the day, and so, you know, um, you know they, those 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 don't make us, don't those don't give me as much uh, kind of heartburn the fact that they exist, and so yeah, does that complicate things a little bit? Uh, no, probably not. At, no more than like you said, the Air Force having the Air Force RCO, the Air Force doesn't really have an SDA equivalent, but the fact that SDA is doing you know commercially focused kind of work is. You know, not a big deal. You can sort of manage that. Um, I think it was weird before where, like, the SDA was reporting, you know, through uh, up to the SAE, but not to SSC. So SSC is sort of like, you know, there's still some little bit of messiness there. But the fact that the space RCO reports direct to the CSO, that's fairly normal. It's what the RCO, Air Force RCO has now with their board, corporate board. So, yeah, the thing that gets me, <laughs> the, 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 the area where I start to kind of lose it is, a little, is with the um, sort of the SWAC, where the SWAC comes into play, where the SPOC comes into play, where the pick comes into play, where those organizations now have a lot of control over the investments. And so the SWAC is, is coordinating with a gazillion people doing a million things, but they're methodically working through these different force designs the PIC is supposed to deconflict so that the ice intelligence community is not overlapping too much with what the space force is investing in. And so they're supposed to deconflict and say, okay, you take that mission, but make, make sure you share your data. We'll do this thing. And we'll share our data. Um, and then, yeah, then you do have the fact now it used to be the SS SMC commander actually was the PO and actually did have acquisition authority. And so, that is new. Um, that was new when, when General Thompson sort of re, redid SFC, and so now there's, now those POs co-direct to the SAE. So that is that is a little bit new, but not a big deal. It's really and then the the other piece that gets me is the System Integration Office, um, which is sort of between General Grutline and Frank Cavelli. So you have this other office that's sort of uh, directing POs in some ways or influencing them. Uh, in certain ways but then you also have like chief engineers of the ssc so there's there's a lot of players and probably too many players when it comes to some of the some of the acquisition uh, programs the people that they have to please and the people that they're kind of reporting to and having to feed information to i could easily see this becoming burdensome where the SWAC is asking for a bunch of things and then you're prepping briefings for the pick and this and you're prepping, you know, making sure the SSO, SSO office is happy because they are asking for stuff. And you just like just getting deluged by it, a million different requests. So this is not as clean as I would like it. I don't think anybody would organize it this way. I think they kind of got pushed into doing this just by virtue of some of the congressional language and some of the some of the things that took off. But yeah, I don't love it. Yeah.
0: I mean, th- there's a good chart in there that does take you through the space warfighting analysis Center WAC, and then to you know, the S5 and S8. So resourcing and, and requirements, you know, you got those three-star level individuals. Then then you have another integration office that makes a lot of recommendations in terms of resourcing. Then it goes to the PIC program integration council, which actually does the resourcing decisions. And then <laughs> then it comes down. So yeah, I'm with you. It's, there's a lot of people here, but I think it just follows the acquisition mentality of, you know, very linear very waterfall approaches like first we're just going to have requirements we're going to analyze the hell out of it we're going to decide which requirements get funded into what level and then you just go do it and we don't need to because there's no circle here actually if you're looking at the chart chart it's just like a one-way flow to the peo and then there's no feedback Mm -hmm. to the SWAC, right so this whole thing is screwed up um and i don't think it's the space force's fault necessarily like their alternative acquisition report was actually really great. If they could have actually run with that, right? Um, Radically simplified the structure, actually done kind of portfolio acquisition, executive type things to integrate a lot of these functions in one person um, that has the authority to go do it. Things just would have been better, but I don't, I think OMB kind of stifled that. So, um, and then Congress also has its language. So anyway,
1: yeah, if I was doing this, if I was doing this from scratch, and what my vision when first, Space Forces first first stood up was to have the SPOC, which now almost has no uh, no influence That's the on any space
0: anything. operations center.
1: The space operations center used to be Space Command, and so when Space Command was there, they had control of requirements and budget, at least what got submitted. And so they, uh, you had that shop was in Colorado Springs, very close to the operators, right to the all the. You know uh, all the leaders, uh, space leaders, uh, doing doing things in Colorado, right there. Buckley, of course, you did have Buckley and Vandenberg, and you had L.A. Air Force Base, but that was all like one little complex, and folks could easily kind of communicate and you know adjudicate stuff. Did they do everything perfect? No, but but they, but you actually, I thought that if Spock retained the requirements capability, and then you had um, the Delta commanders who were out at Uh, who are part of Space Force, managing the missions, controlling the operations aspect of it. If you had them directly tied into feeding requirements to the SPOC and then the SPOC feeding the needs to SSC, and then SSC could collaborate with SDA and Space RCO on what missions, whatever. But so there did need to be some adjudication with those other two organizations. But I thought that that would all be one. You can make that one happy family. And you could throw, you know, a SWAC mission in with the SPOC and say, yeah, analyze these things. That could have been part of the SPOC. But the fact that a lot of these things got brought up to a really high level, um, I think, is was the is the main problem I have. Is like I, I always was hoping that Space Force would keep that at a low level. The fact that there's an SAE probably really kind of complicated that. There's a, a new Space Force SAE. I would have loved to have seen the Air Force SAE keep that job. And just maybe have a couple programs at their level that were really big and complex, or maybe that had some air domain sort of interaction, uh, but let the let the SSC commander handle most of the acquisition, right? So can,
0: that would have been the ideal. Yeah. Can the SAE delegate ACAT one programs? No, no. So that I mean, that in space is going to have yeah, a lot of yeah. ACAT ones too. But
1: they could have written that in congressional language to allow it. So, I mean, if, you know, like I would have I would have rather than push for that, but it seems like folks wanted them to have their own SAE. So now it's like you have the SAE, but then you also have, you still have General Goodline in the loop who's trying to help, but then you have yeah these other offices.
0: All right. Mid-tier programs running out of time. Overruns coming, Kendall says. Um, and so, that, of course, that's Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, given he was talking to uh, reporters, it looks like, and he says, mid-tier acquisition programs are running out of clock. They might need fresh funding. Uh, streams. So this kind of gets back to this idea that a lot of the middle tier of acquisition programs weren't fully funded um, in the fit up, or even if they were, you know, funded through their five year cycle. So the middle tier of acquisition, right, the rapid prototyping pathway, um, you're supposed to rapidly prototype or field something within five years. They might have that funding set aside, but not the next the next phase of the the program. So. There's a lot of out-year uncertainty, um, essentially, and Kendall kind of here says, "Unfortunately, that's the price we pay." <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is kind of we we knew about it, and trade-offs are going to have to be made. Um, but this kind of gets back to some of the appropriators and and the authorizers' concerns that are kind of coming down in the last couple of years and this year that they want more information, more costs, more full funding requirements from the comptroller and then certification of like test plans from um, operational tests and evaluation and other things like this. So not surprised. And I think we'll probably be hearing a lot more about um, these types of issues, regularizing middle tier of acquisition.
1: Yeah, probably. Unfortunately, I mean, I think people are missing the, the point with this. And I think Secretary Kendall's also by the way you messaged this sort of I don't know, makes it seem a little misleading. But I mean the idea with MTA was always that you would you were pursuing a prototype that could be fielded. And you you didn't always know where it was going to go after that. Uh, but programs were always advised to say, yeah, like to have a transition plan. That's actually in the guidance, is to say when you get to a point where you know there's a place for this and you have, you know, operators saying that, yeah, this is this is promising and we want to take it to the next level. you can plan for that and that's when you start palming now of course right through the cycle you have to do that you know so far in advance but you know as far as the programs that i was interacted with they were planning for that it wasn't like they they were not thinking about the beyond five years because um programs want to keep you know they want to get they want to scale their 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 product if they're if it's a successful thing and the operators want it too so there's it's kind of silly to say that like there was just like I I mean, I think too generalized to say that there was this no planning and like these things were just like, okay, five years. And then, oh, my goodness, I didn't think about the fact that I needed to do something after this. Like that, that definitely happened. Now, what what did probably did not happen is that not all of them had the support to get funded in the way that maybe now the Air Force leadership is thinking they should be funded. So maybe some things were, yeah, we'll buy a few of those. And now they're thinking we'll buy a lot more of them. And maybe that funding was not in place. And, and for sure, at the, most MTA programs do not have life cycle estimate because they don't know at that point that, you know where they're going to go. So there's probably some funding that maybe is higher than was expected, but it's not like there wasn't any planning. I mean, this is, this is definitely MTA programs are formal programs. They're definitely being thought of as like what happens after. So yeah, the fact they weren't fully funded, I think we had to retire that term, but there was probably some funding or at least there were funding requests that maybe were not granted, but, but yeah, the, it wasn't a planning issue. I, I guarantee.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good way of articulating it. Of course there are like spend plans that people have developed for these things and alternative scenarios, but did they formally make it into, you know, the president's budget requests? Was that, cause there's, there can only be one future right in, in the fit up and you have to like show that thing. Which is kind of ridiculous because the way the whole idea of the rapid acquisition, as you said, was you don't really know, right? You might want to start several things. Some of them might, you know, 100x what you thought it was going to do. So you want to funnel more money into that or other things, um, let's just let those die on the vine. right? So there's a contingency or multiple possible futures, yet the fitup pretends like there's one future, even though when you look at the budget like year to year to year to year, there's just like no rhyme or reason to what's actually being done anyway. So it like kind of pretends this kind of like static future um, planning process when in reality it never actually works out that way.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think folks that just aren't aren't like in the technology world or that are not in, you know, the program offices today, I just think they just think um, things are cleaner than they are. And they think that everything should be like, I'm now going to build a plane okay, I'm going to think about every feature this plane should have. I'm going to plan that out. Uh, and then I'm going to buy 100 of these. And that's that's what I will buy. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, we. unfortunately, we're humans and we just, we're not that good at predicting. So, but I think that's what everybody sort of expects. It's like, yeah, you should know everything from the start. That's, that's crazy. Yeah,
0: the history of technology, like any major technology or important technology you like look into the history of, there's always like these like discovery things, and you know, people were kind of working through it in real time and like one damn thing after another kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Initial operating capability are declared for Unmanned Influence Sweep System, UISS, and that's from NavC News. And the UISS is an acoustic and magnetic mine sweeping coupled with the semi autonomous diesel powered aluminum hulled. Mine countermeasures unmanned surface vehicle. So there's a lot of stuff there, but this MCM USV, um, it kind of com- I guess it, this comes from the legacy of the, the littoral combat ship uh, mine countermeasures mission package. And so, hey, something actually you know successful came <laughs> out of that. But notably, this is uh, important because it's the first initial operating capability IOC of an unmanned surface platform by the U.S. Navy. So hopefully that will kind of pave the way for a lot more. Um, of course, the, uh, the CNO, um, the Chief Naval Officer, has kind of reiterated that he wants to have a number, 150 potentially or more unmanned surface vessels or underwater vessels in the future. You know, 2045 battle plan. So this is kind of a interesting milestone. Of course, and it also makes sense. You can see why they kind of group together LCS a littoral combat ship into small combatants and unmanned systems so all the that kind of got reworked into that peo structure not too long ago
1: yeah no this is a this is a good one i mean i think you know clearly the navy went out hard initially with their unmanned plan and it got a lot of pushback so i think this is the right way to do it sort of you know uh, incrementally uh, show progress have these Iocs of some of these you know the one difference with this platform I think it was pointed out in a different article was this one is kind of uh, tethered to to the ship so it's not operating autonomously it is it's it's a uh, it's usually you know fairly close to a man vessel um, but you know hey that's that's a good starting point and then you know we can start to march towards a IOC for a medium USV or a large uh, you know large amateur Uh, underwater vessel. So yeah, so there, you know, this is a good, good milestone.
0: European Union to accelerate naval projects under huge defense investment budget. And so on July 20th, they announced that they're going to support 61 joint defense research and development projects with a total of 1.2 billion in euros. And I think the euro has kind of equated itself to the dollar recently. Um, So we can just think of those as dollars. And one of the most important here in the naval fields is the European patrol Corvette. One of the things that I thought was interesting was one, even Europe is able to hobble together a $1 billion kind of innovation fund. And the <laughs> United States can't seem to breach, you know, a $100 million anywhere. And then the other part here is actually 61 projects, 1.2 billion. That's close to $20 million per project. And so, even there, like the the U.S. Defense Innovation Fund projects tend to be right, like one million, three million, maybe ten million dollars. You're not really going to see too many twenty million, but that's the average here um, for the Europeans. So, you know, when the Europeans get their act together and are kind of doing things at scale, you know, better than the U.S., it's time to kind of get nervous.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I I, th- I actually think Europe is about to show us how to do it. Um, not just this fund, but right, the NATO Innovation Fund, which is another, it's more of a, a VC managed uh, kind of fund, but they're putting, you know, billions into that. Um, they're also funding Diana, which is a, a sort of a technology accelerator program, putting a lot of money and resources into that. And NATO is actually, you know, releasing, you know, uh, the, sh- the strings a little bit. They used to be very control oriented and they've actually started to realize that no, no, some of these things have to be separate because we need change, we need innovation. Uh, and so they've come to that realization and you see, you know, cooperation like this, more cooperation between the partners leveraging each other's strengths. So, yeah, I, I'm very, very bullish on uh, on the EU uh, moving forward. I think that the U.S. we are still, you know, still struggling with a lot of legacy stuff. But I think the, the, the EU is sort of recognizing where they need to go. So.
0: Uh, the military services are not aligned on JADC2 efforts, Air Force official warns. And uh, not just that, we also heard Doug Bush again, like in another article. So these are kind of coming pretty fast. There's lots of articles on people warning that JADC2 ain't, ain't going all so well. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I read recently that the cross-functional team in the J6 that's kind of running this from the joint staff, is over 150 people now, just, you know, coordinating these efforts. So I don't know. I mean, this is just another article in the line of articles that, oh, the services each have their own project, and none of these things are really working out. We have a guy from SAIC here also saying that, quote, the capabilities between them are not matching up, and we're beginning to find that out. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll be hearing more of that. And I'm not really sure what to think of it, whether this kind of like hype in terms of it's not working out or whether, you know, the services are actually making pretty good, you know, movement towards their own individual kind of needs. But the question is, are those, you know, connections that they're making in the joint networked force, is that actually serving the kinds of networked, you know, communications that the combatant commander needs? I, I'm not really sure. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll be hearing a lot about that. Any takeaways for you?
1: Yeah, I actually, and I wrote a blog on this recently about, um, I, I actually am becoming more convinced that we need some type of joint program office for this. And I, I say that not, not, not that it needs to take over everything, but a coordination function that actually has acquisition capabilities so that if when they see it when they identify seams or they, I, they identify cross cutting capabilities, um, or they, you know, they identified major disconnects. They can actually take that on, and they have the they have the technical expertise and sort of the management program management to uh, to, to handle that. I, I, you know, I put some kind of principles on what the, I think that PO should look like. But I'm starting to think that that is needed only because these services really are going out on their own. I think the Navy, you know, talked about overmatch being a lot about sort of like you know getting email and some basic things on chips and and things like that. But at some point you do have to start building those capabilities that in a joint fight, right. in the joint warfighting construct and this idea of everything being dispersed and having to come together, the, the, the joint warfighting construct is all about aggregate to disaggregate. Uh, I'm sorry, if you're going to aggregate to disaggregate, you better know, you better be able to share data. And so if the F-18 can't share data with the F-35 very well, or can't, can't collect you know information from ground sensors and ships, uh, and space assets, and it, and it can't do that seamlessly, uh, there's going to be a lot of gaps, a lot of a lot of, a lot of uh, assets flying around that are not, uh, not working very well. So to achieve the JADC2 vision, I think we're at the point now where some of the things the services are working on are probably great and they need to continue. Some of them are probably becoming disconnected uh, from some of the other efforts. And there's no agreement on standards, and there's no agreement uh, on the architectures. And so uh, I think you do need somebody to do that. And I just don't think the CFT, it's not organized for that. And as the uh, good article that uh, Dan, Dan Pat, uh put together, um, uh, Dan and Brian Clark wrote, um, they they also don't have any any control. The only way they can control things is actually through writing requirements. And that's not a good way of doing business. So so yeah, I think I think there doesn't need to be a change. I don't know if the joint PO is the right way to go, but I definitely don't like the idea of the joint force headquarters, which was being proposed in the SASC NDA this, this year, I think that's, you know, that will be, uh, that'll be really problematic, but uh, yeah, has to be something happens here.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of scared of, I mean, <laughs> I you know, you, know, you <laughs> I know I'm with you, man. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of uh, jumped over the barrier and went towards the, the, and you said a PEO. So <laughs> I guess it'll be a small PEO, probably be like a RCO type thing, but still, I, I don't know. It, it w- might make sense if you just maybe taxed like you had like a super tax and that all that tax goes to not maybe the j6 or maybe your office but then they kind of reallocate that back based on their own decisions towards what what kill chains they want to close and so they don't actually execute it they kind of just decide where the money needs to go would that be an alternative so well,
1: I did one of the one of the principles I did put for the JPO is that they would they would review the service budgets to identify disconnects as part of the PBR. So yeah, I mean, I think that there definitely has to be some control, whether it's over budget. So that would be one way to do it is to, to tax, I guess. Um, but ultimately, I do think you
0: need because um, if you had a program office, that would just come under oversight super hard, and then it would just look like everything else, and they wouldn't actually be able to react. And do things, you know, in an iterative and agile fashion. Well, I think I think you
1: could. I think you have to organize it right, and it has to be done across product lines, mission areas, you know. So it has to be it has to be done right, and it has to be collaborative. Um, right now, I think the services, and this is happening on, on many things. Right, the services don't really want to play together because they have their own vision of the world, and so you know they try to meet what the co-coms want, but generally have their own thing and they're trying to, you know, pursue it. So, you yeah, know, I, I think you, you need some stick. They need to have some stick in the, in the game. Maybe it's the budget piece. Uh, maybe it's the, some control over standards, which the CFT has been trying to do. This have not been able to get agreement, but I don't know. I don't know what the answer is here, but I think if you could think about the F-35 being run while it was horrible to have a, G, a joint program office with as many people as it does, can you imagine if that program had been tried to be run, By each service, doing their own thing, it 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 would have well. There would have been even more disconnects than there were today, I think.
0: Or the navy just would have bailed out much earlier. The air force would have gotten (laughs) its model not been corrupted, and the navy would have just gone quicker to something else that was its own. Right. Well, yeah. No, the Navy was drawn. Yeah. It was we're screens, lucky so, yeah, yeah, in yeah. many respects, right? <laughs> that the Navy dropped out of the TFX, the F-111 in the 1960s, which was basically the F-35 program. So we got right, lucky. But let's say the Navy wanted the F-35. Let's say the Navy wanted it. And they all were, were doing their own thing. Like, you can imagine how things would have gone. Like I could imagine. Uh, actually, but the, I think the point of the matter is that in the real world, that even if they wanted to do that, the outcomes would have been worse, right? Like they could, they can't like, you know, get over physics, right? <laughs> in some respects. No, no, I just mean, I just
1: mean in terms of keeping a common baseline, yeah. at least as much as possible. But but it didn't, yeah, it went from
0: 25 a, to 75%. If, if they actually didn't have, right, um, a joint structure and they went from 25 to 75% commonality over the course of the program, everyone would have been like, oh, geez, can you imagine? We, we need to centralize that function. That just did not work out. But I guess the argument is like in a recession, right? It's like it could have been worse. It's like, well, you know, it would have been 90% or 100% different if you let them, right? But a lot of counterfactual. Well, the, the mission system's the same. Um, but yeah, the, the the structure is different because the Air Force yeah. went
1: on a big lightning, light, you know, lightning up the aircraft and they made everything aluminum, which the Navy aircraft couldn't, couldn't handle because the the... Uh, Forces of, of landing on a carrier, so. but a general. So yeah, no, it started you know,
0: diverge. Like it's it's hard to argue that the JPO wouldn't be more coordinated in its execution of a joint program than separate program offices.
1: Yeah, it's the it's the worst alternative that that of among worse worser ones. I, I just don't know what the answer. Well, the, is, the better alternative <laughs> would have been to had an
0: incremental program and not have dictated the outcomes of the F thirty five. Oh no, I mean on C too. Yeah. I, I think the towards, same principles it, exist. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, cause you were saying, well, we need to come to the standards and have the, have agreement on the architecture. Those things are going to be moving, you know, um, and you can't wait for someone to machine gun all these standards on contract. And then a couple of years later, you know, people figure it out. So things are going to be moving. And I wonder what's that kind of in between where we navigate towards standards or we adopt the right standards um, as opposed to thinking like, I'm just gonna like get this committee this working group together they're gonna say what it is and then everyone's gonna execute to that and it's gonna be glorious you know
1: yeah I mean I think we're gonna have to move to like a data mesh kind of thing where there's there's gonna be different standards and and and, and you 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 just you know you basically have things that can make them work together kind of like kind of like stitches but you know more of a commercial commercial data mesh that can sort of make make data move across you know across the across the seams, you know, at at speeds that are operationally relevant. But I think, I think Dan, I think Dan and uh, Brian in their, in their paper made a really good point about, we really should have started with a couple key operational challenges and then got the services together to say, how are we going to address this challenge in a joint way? Maybe, how are you going to contribute army? But I, I feel like we sort of like tried to eat the whole apple at once. And so everyone just went off and did their own thing. And um, we, we really never got those you know iterative to move iteratively it would have been nice to have those challenges and be like okay guys we're gonna bite this app a lot and we're gonna bite take this bite and the next bite and then you know and then after you actually sort of make those little little pieces work together it's like it starts to come together at the end now you're gonna have some systems that are divergent because they're a lot of legacy platforms but yeah I, I don't know it would have been nice to, to take that approach but I think we're, we're too far along now personally
0: Uh when you go, when there's a fork in the road and you go down the wrong way, the shortest path to where you need to go is to turn back. That, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. A good point. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that applies to this scenario, but yeah. Um, it, it might. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so, well, let's end on a couple of F-35 things here. Kendall says F-35 engine decision needed soon won't limp along on R&D. And so that's the advanced engine transition program, uh, which was supposed to be for the next generation air dominance. Right. But they're talking about whether they want to kind of accelerate that and put it into the F-35. Uh, Kendall here is saying it's going to take seven billions of dollars, perhaps six billion And five-year program to move ahead through the engineering and manufacturing development. So to get that fully, you know, production ready and to get fielded. So that's five years, six billion. And then you got to backfill the F-35s. It won't work for all of the variants. So the F-35B probably will not be able to accept it. But what Kendall desires about it is that you get significant range extension out of it and uh, additional capability out of it. So... Um, yeah, I mean, this has been, you know, in the, the works for a while that there might be a replacement to the Pratt and Whitney engine. Um, I was thinking that they're looking for something a little bit more high TRL, a little bit more production ready, but it's interesting here, um, that they're going to potentially accelerate that, um, advanced engine transition program.
1: Yeah, that that ATP is pretty mature. It's been around. It's been around for a long time, and it's based on the initial G engine that was they had they had initially. But it the, kind of got some you know some big technology boost on it. Um, I think the Air Force is really in on this because they know the F thirty five doesn't have the legs, so particularly for the specific fight. And the ATP will give you, uh, I think it's twenty five percent additional range, and it also has better engine characteristics in terms of. Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, the the edges of the engine and, and how they can you can perform at different uh, uh, different envelopes. So, so yeah, I mean, the Air Force definitely wants this. I think the big challenge is going to be selling the Navy on it because it actually does work for the Navy jet. It just doesn't work for the Marine Corps. Uh, that six billion dollars, you know, bump that up to ten billion. It's you know, getting this engine in there will be an incredibly complicated thing. It took a long time to make it all work well with Pratt Whitney. So. So, yeah, I I would get this going, though, because I think even if you did something like on the F-16s, you you had sort of pre-block 30s and post-blocks. You you might just need to draw a cut line and say, when the the ATP is ready, we'll begin filling that into the production line. Um, And then countries that have already had F-35s, you just keep them. We will keep buying both engines for the foreseeable future. Um, and then, you know, the air force can sort of prioritize those with the ATP to go to the Pacific or whatever, but this is going to take a long time to be, to, to, to get done. So I think they should just start it. Um, and then, you know, if countries don't want to buy it, uh, you know, Lockheed could, uh, you know, maybe stand up another production line, you know, at that point, the numbers might be, uh, uh, might be OK where, you know, maybe there is a case to be made for non-ATP and ATP type uh, aircraft. So, so yeah, I um, think I think it will be hard to get the partners. The partners probably don't see this being as critical as the Air Force does. So if you want them to cost share that $10 billion, they probably will fight that. So the Air Force might, the Air Force and Navy might just have to suck this one up if they don't want to uh, to fight the partners on this one. But,
0: Yeah. And the uh, partners are growing. The Czech Republic declared their intent to buy 24 F-35s and they uh, passed on the Gripen and the F-16 as well. And it looks like uh, the rationale here is that advanced fifth generation fighters will be able to meet mission requirements in future battlefields. (laughs) So um, I I think they're really looking for kind of like all that, you know, electronic and um, electronic warfare, sensor suite, communications. Um, fifth gen, you know, stealth. So, you know, a lot of the European countries are making the same choices, you know, so I think that's actually saying something about the F-35, despite the fact, I'm sure you saw just recently, they decided to ground pretty much all of the F-35s in the US and Israel because of an ejection seat problem. Um, But let's put that to to the side. And uh, it's a pretty big win here uh, for the Czech Republic, or for the F-35 and Lockheed Martin itself, which is kind of coming on the heels of, Canada, Finland, Switzerland, and Germany all kind of choosing the F-35 as well.
1: I mean, I think definitely part of it's the mission, the capabilities of it, because it does have, you know, its ability to process data is, is pretty unparalleled. But I think part of it really is that just that, you know, there is a mass of EU countries that are already in on it. And it's a lot easier to jump on that train and be be immediately interoperable and to have the same capabilities, the same training, the same logistics. Uh, I think that's very appealing to a lot of the European countries. And so at the same time, it scares me that like F-35 will be the dominant fighter and like, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, somebody finds a way to disable them and it'll be really bad not to have that kind of redundancy. So, um, I hope they, you know, the Gripen and some of these other, you, you know, Eurofighter and things like that will still have a place because I don't think, uh, don't think you want everybody going all in. But yeah, it is good to see that at least, you know, most of the European countries will have at least a contingent of F-35s and that, that will enable them to, to do missions together a lot more easily. So,
0: Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again and until next time.